This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 23 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and on this episode, we're going to go under the hood of Swift and talk about the compiler and what it's like kind of working on the language itself. So to do that, I have not only one, but two special guests with me here today. And they are both regular contributors to the Swift compiler. First up is Harlan Haskins. Welcome to the show, Harlan. Hi, thank you. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, it's uh, super cool to have you on. Really looking forward to diving deep into Swift. Me too. Awesome. And we also have Robert Whitman. Welcome to the show, Robert. Hi, John. It was an honor to meet you uh, at, at Builders Swift. Uh, and uh, it's an honor to be here right now. Honor, honor to have you on. It's, uh, it's uh, very, very nice. So yeah, you mentioned that we met all three of us at the App Builders conference just a few weeks ago over in Switzerland. So uh, what have you been up to since then, since uh, your trip to Europe? I've been finishing up my undergrad uh, at RIT, basically just going heads down uh, for the past month or so on final projects and final assignments. Um, and then I've also been doing some work for Google on Swift in the meantime. Oh, that's really, really cool. I am a year younger than Harlan academically. Uh, and so I was mostly just getting through finals and finishing up any uh, loose threads uh, in open source that, that may need to be tied up before I have to depart for the summer and I'm busy. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, at AppBuilders, you gave a very interesting talk called uh, Becoming an Effective Contributor to Swift. And it was about like, you know, how to get started contributing to Swift and some of the things that you've learned kind of along the way. So since you're both like still in school and you're like getting started now, you know, working, you know, for some internships and getting started working, uh, what kind of got you into also working on the Swift compiler? So for me, uh, when I was in my second year of college, I was, I, I still remember the, the one day where my friend Matt showed me some Haskell that he was working on. And it was so foreign to me, and I rejected it immediately. <laughs> uh, but then, on closer inspection, it was the most—it was probably one of the most interesting things I could have ever seen because it, it completely changed how I thought about programming and about computing in general. Like I didn't realize that you could you could program in a in a mathematical sense. That was it was totally foreign to me, and I was really interested in it. I did a deep dive in that for the next you know year or so. Um, oh, sorry. No, this was my first year. Uh, and then when I, when I was an Apple intern, they announced Swift and I saw all these parallels to things that I had, you know, just recently discovered in Haskell and, and it sort of, you know, started the, the engines of really liking languages and language design. Um, so over the next couple of years, I did my own little compiler or language projects, you know, nothing on a large scale. And then, I joined the Swift Quality team, and after that, started working on Trill and my own languages, and then, you know, 
trying to make as big of an impact as I could in Swift while also, you know, passing all my classes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, that's always super impressive. Like when people are multitasking this way, like, you know, being an intern, studying at the same time and still like finding time to uh, work on things, you know, for me as as complex as working on a compiler. Yeah, I think uh, I think there's an undeserved um, amount of of reverence toward compilers um, versus other large software projects. I think I really do think that compilers are an accessible, to a certain extent, project for for the majority of people with a software engineering background. Um, really, everything is you can just break it up into small components, and each one of those components can be understood. Yeah, I guess it's like with everything. It's like if you if you're just a user of it and you view it as this like black box, you know, your source code goes in and binary code comes out, then it's uh, you know, it's you can look at it like you can kind of put it on a pedestal in a in a way and and look at it maybe as more complex than it actually is once you start diving in and, you know, like you say, looking at all the individual parts and how they actually work. Yeah, and once you do that, it stops being the compiler won't let me write this and the compiler's telling me why this is wrong. Exactly, yeah. So what about you, Robert? How did you get started uh, contributing to Swift? So my path is similar to Harlan's in that I had a mentor uh, roughly my sophomore or junior year of high school. Uh, I was connected through mutual friends to somebody named uh, Matthew Lin, who is probably responsible for either directly or indirect, indirectly the uh, current trajectory of my career, which uh, really goes to show how deep an impact that he had. Uh, at the time, I you know, had a lot of interesting preconceptions about what programming was and what mathematics was, and he blew them all out of the water. Like he was, he was a wonderful, insightful, intelligent human being uh, at a time when I needed that. Yeah. And uh, it was very wonderful to have somebody that could just talk about anything with you. And he introduced me to uh, formal programming language theory. He introduced me to a ton of math. Um, I started taking classes at the local university uh, specifically in computer architecture and um, and like discrete math and other kinds of things. And uh, I got really, really interested through him in functional programming uh, and sort of wandered off into my own world. But at the time, I was actually writing Mac apps. And oh. uh, I still continue to, to do that on the side. Um, but uh, specifically at the time, I was working on an email client. And one of the the interesting things about that is that uh, email is is heavily text-based, and so you write a lot of parsers. And right. It, it turns out that if you like trolling through the email RFCs <laughs> to go figure out why your parser is broken, it's not all that much different from implementing a, a language spec. It, it is implementing a language spec. Yeah. And, and all of the little intricacies that come along with it. And then sort of, you can sort of couple that on with like a budding interest in mathematics and type theory and all this other stuff. And it was just this perfect storm uh, so that when Swift was released, you know, uh, I thought this, this is the next greatest thing. You know, this is, this is the way that I can immerse myself in all of this, what had up to this point been theory. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a super inspiring story. And yeah, you're totally right. It's like when you think about it, like uh, any type of parsing is like, yeah, that's kind of what a compiler does. It tries to make sense of your source code and then run it through a bunch of different steps. And then eventually you have machine code, right? Yeah, I assume we'll be talking more about this later. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's it, folks. That's the end of the show. <laughs> now we've explained compilers. <laughs> All right. So uh, apart from working on Swift and the Swift compiler, you've also been working together. And that's kind of why I wanted to have both of you on here together, both because of the talk you've been giving and the work that you've been doing in the community. And a couple, you have a couple of different projects on GitHub that you've been working on together. And one of them uh, that I was looking at earlier today is uh, Silt, uh, which is a super interesting uh, project. And you're describing it as an in-progress, fast, dependently typed, functional programming language implemented <laughs> in Swift. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a really... Really interesting um, description there. Like you, you caught my attention with that one. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. Like how did this project get started and what's kind of the motivation behind it? Back when Robert and I uh, were last interning at Apple, we both sort of sat down and said, you know what? When we're done with this, I really want to just actually see what we could do to implement some sort of dependently typed language. But then also... You know, we should work on. I basically said we should work on a language project together, and I want it to be a functional language. And Robert sort of, you know, pulled me aside into the uh, the the common area in the apartment that we were living in at the time, and he he basically just said concept dependent types, and he showed me how they work in Agda, and I uh, I was resistant at the time, but you know, eventually I came around, and it's a very cool programming paradigm. Um, and so I, I I wanted to see how far we could get working together on a compiler to a native binary using LLVM for this dependently typed language um, that eventually we called Silt because we love puns. <laughs> I do not understand how we started with the idea for let's have a compiler and then ended up with geology puns. <laughs> <laughs> The entire compiler is geology puns. I don't know if you took a, take a look inside of the, the sources directory and see all of the little frameworks and their names. There's also a nice little readme in there that explains roughly the architecture that we've laid out for this. Ah, there you go. It's uh, You have everything from seismo, seismo, seismography to outer core to mantle and crust and boring. Yeah, it turns out that it's organized uh, roughly in the shape of the layers of the earth. That's awesome. Yeah, so so silt uh, silt is, I like to say it's it's our love letter to modern programming language development. The inspiration from from different programming projects and different research groups is very uh, evident all throughout all the different phases of the compiler and and we do try to cite these papers uh, and that we're taking inspiration from if anybody else wants to go wander off and do their own thing as well my favorite little bit of that is uh, the the surface the the parser and everything of the language um, uses a copy of Swift syntax directly from the Swift repository but with our own AST nodes instead of the existing Swift AST nodes so we um, we wrote, actually, the first that I know of uh, Swift syntax parser for a language. Yeah, that's really cool because the Swift one is written in C++, right? Mm-hmm. 
And just to, we're going to dive more deeper into this in a moment, but when we're talking about AST, we're talking about the abstract syntax tree, right? Which is what the compiler kind of starts by generating when it reads your source code to figure out like the overall structure of your code. Yeah, like, uh, you know, you wouldn't pass a big old string way down deep in the in the compiler. It's It's always good whenever you're writing any piece of code to take things out of strings as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the AST is just the structured representation that the string represents. Yeah, exactly. So Robert, now you have to explain to us what does dependently typed mean? <laughs> so I'll start uh, with, I guess, talking about Swift then. So Swift does not have dependent types. It does have generics though. So for example, you can write a generic array, a generic set, a generic dictionary, and you you can instantiate like array at int and then have an array of ints and pass it around and everything's type safe and everybody's happy. But it doesn't necessarily go deeper than that. There's more invariants that we can express than just all the elements have the same type. And it would be really interesting, I think, if those invariants were checkable by the type checker in the same way that that all the elements have the same type invariant is. So the example that is constantly brought up as like the hello world of a dependently typed language is vectors. And the idea is that a vector is an array that is statically indexed by its length. So every operation you perform on the vector is not only type safe, it's also safe with respect to the length of the array, which turns out to eliminate a huge, huge class of bugs. The classic uh, overflow er error where you are trying to access an index that is out of bounds, right? Yes, because your your index, you can provide uh, an array that is statically known to have length n. You can provide a proof that the integer that you're passing to subscript into the array is strictly less than the length of the array. And then the resulting operation will not compile unless that index is always valid. And so you can imagine this generalizes to a huge, enormous amount of examples. So like Connor McBride, who is a researcher out of the University of Strathclyde, does a talk where he, on stage, implements a type that does self-balancing binary trees. (laughs) Nice. And it is 100% correct at every point. That could probably also work a lot to get rid of optionality, right? Because you can move a lot of these checks or a lot of these conditionals to compile time instead, right? Exactly. A lot of the the reason that we have optionals isn't necessarily because values can be nil. It might be because some part of your representation is forcing you to speak at that level like, you know, like you may have delayed initialization from like interface builder. Yeah. And Swift doesn't quite, Swift's programming model requires definite initialization. So if you had a dependently typed language, you might have some proof that the value that you're getting back from interface builder, that the bindings that you built in interface builder uh, always guarantee that this thing will be initialized and you can drop the optional. Yeah. And I think that that would be a huge win if something like that could happen. There are so many things that that brings with it. For example, you can't use really um, 
initializer based dependency injection and things like that because you have all this optionality and all this like binding that happens later in the object's lifecycle. Yes. Uh, and it, it is uh, one of the nice things about Silt is that we abstract away a lot of that, a lot of the things that a usual Swift programmer would have to think about. And it's partially for our own benefit and uh, definitely simplifies the implementation. Another big goal that we have for Silt is, um, um, so Rust has this really great model of own ownership that comes sort of from C++'s model of, you know, move move only types and movability, um, but expands upon it significantly. And it comes from formal type theory as the notion of an affine type system. Um, and in, in type theory, we have this notion of linear and affine types uh, affine, affine, whatever. Um, <laughs> and and a, a linear type system guarantees that a value will be used exactly one time in uh, the scope that it's declared or a scope that it's passed to. Um, and an affine type system says it's going to be used either zero or one times exactly. And so we've come up with a system where uh, values in silt will only be used either zero or one times, but it's entirely transparent to the user. Um, so, you know, if you do use a value twice, it'll be copied. And if you only use it the one time, it'll just be moved around. Um, this is, this can be slightly inefficient and that's where, you know, future optimization passes will sort of, sort of hope to, to help things. But what the real benefit of this is, is since we know things will be used exactly zero or one times and that there's going to be a, a static owner, we don't need automatic reference counting and we don't need a garbage collector to be able to clean up after ourselves. Oh, that's very cool. Um, and we infer this entirely from the code that you write uh, without you ever having to think about it. There's no ownership in the surface language. That ownership is created for you uh, when we lower so it's a it's a lot of benefit there. We don't have to have a garbage collector. We don't have to have automatic reference counting. Your things just get predictably destroyed when they are not used. Oh, that's very cool. Because in automatic reference counting, which Swift uses, you have every time you are adding a strong reference to an object, you're incrementing the reference count. And every time that object goes away, you're decrementing the reference count. And what you're saying here is that you are able to infer all that information. You know that on line 52 in this file, this object will always be deallocated because we can just infer that from the source code. Right. Uh, and if it's because we have the simple property that every value in our lowered representation will be used either zero or one times, um, we can track usages of those values uh, all the way down, you know, through the lowering passes. And eventually, you know, we just have a predictable allocation of that object and then an eventual deallocation of it either being passed to a function or by the caller... Uh, there, there's an entire calling convention for it and it's kind of complicated but yeah it's predictable cool so uh, while developing uh, Silt you also well you already mentioned that you built it on top of LLVM which is the same compiler infrastructure that Swift uses and you even wrote a Swift wrapper for the LLVM API that you're using in your in your compiler which is uh, you know really cool so what's it been like for you, like getting started with, you know, building something of your own on top of LLVM? Uh, so for me, it started in December 
of 2015, um, when I was, you know, basically I was in the middle of my winter break and I thought, you know what, it's getting a little boring not having classes <laughs> or, or work to do. So I, I started following LLVM's guide on Kaleidoscope, which is a small little language that uh, basically the LLVM tutorial gives you the entire specification for and takes you through lexing, parsing, uh, lowering to LLVM, compiling it to a binary, uh, just in time compiling it and running it right there. Um, it really goes in depth of how LLVM works and how LLVM is structured and how practically someone uses it to lower a language with defined semantics. It's a really good tutorial. Um, nice. And sort of as an homage to that tutorial, I rewrote that tutorial in Swift entirely using this set of LLVM bindings. Um, and I put that up on my blog. Nice. Really cool. Uh, we'll definitely put a link uh, to both of those things in the show notes if people want to check them out and start learning more about uh, LLVM. So you men mentioned a couple of different uh, passes or phases that the compiler uses, like lexing, parsing, and things like that. So Robert, could you take us just through like a bird's eye overview of like what the different passes are that the compiler goes through when kind of, yeah, parsing your source code and generating a binary from it? So like Harlan was saying before, uh, it's very difficult to understand a compiler as uh, a, a, the, in, a, in whole. It's, it's very difficult. But when you break it into parts and you sort of focus on each part individually, you can really see how the whole system is just one pipeline that's going from source text down to machine code in as transparent and modular a way as possible. So the first step is you take the file that the user or files that the user has given to you, you take the text in those files and you break them apart along what you consider to be meaningful boundaries. So that could be spaces, that could be uh, quote characters if you're looking for strings, that can be numbers if you're looking for integers or floating point literals. Um, just just break it down into this big stream of, of clusters of characters that you consider to be relevant to you. Um, and this is lexing. The idea is, at the end of the day, you get a stream of what are called tokens right. that point back into the source text. In libsyntax's case, those tokens correspond uh, literally, like one-to-one, -to, -one, to the source text. And you can take the token stream and you can rebuild the source text with the result of the lexer that libsyntax will eventually be using, which is a wonderful property. Nice. Uh, the next step is to take that stream of tokens and turn it into, like you were saying, an abstract syntax tree or an AST, which is a structured representation of all of the different entities defined in your source file. So if you have a class, we'll have a node for the class, its name, uh, all of its member functions and properties will have nodes. All of those will have nodes for their types, for whether they're let or var variables. Uh, all their bodies will have nodes. So the whole, we're moving away from text and towards a semantic representation of code. Yeah, it becomes like a hierarchy, right? Where you have different nodes that all can have a parent and children. For example, a class has its properties as children. Exactly. 
we take that structured representation and to this point it has no types in it. It has only what the user has claimed are types. So we're going to then go through a validation process that makes sure, for example, you aren't using undeclared identifiers or you aren't like trying to apply ownership keywords to non-object entities or just general sort of structural checks against the AST. And then we move to semantic checks. So this is where type checking happens. This is where uh, exhaustiveness for switch statements, that kind of checking happens. Um, this is where coercions between types happens. Um, the resulting AST is the same AST we had before, but now it's annotated completely with all the types that lower phases need. Uh, so to recap up to this point, we have a source file, we break it into parts, we combine those parts back into a tree. That tree is then annotated with semantic information, and then it's handed on to the, to the next phase. Nice. So the next phase is SIL, which is the Swift Intermediate Language, which is a single static assignment form language that is built to look in passing similarity to LVMIR, but uh, LVM's intermediate representation. But LVMIR is fairly low level. It, it, all the decisions about concrete representations of terms um, and some interesting edge cases around like basic block formation, it's all there, it's all finalized. SIL is an abstraction layer on top of that. And so the idea is we compile the AST to SIL first, perform a bunch of optimizations on that SIL, and then it emits canonicalized SIL at the end of the day. That SIL is then taken by a translator in the next layer called IRGen, which turns it into LVMIR, and then the job of the front end is done. It's all LVM from here. Mm -hmm. And they turn it into bits and bytes. And that's really where you get like the power of LLVM and why a bunch of different compilers now are leveraging it because you can focus on what you mentioned, like the first part there where you're basically turning the source code into an intermediate representation. And then you can just hand that off into LLVM that actually does the actual machine code generation for you. Yeah, another important thing is that LVM doesn't know what generics are. Right. So if you need to implement a higher level system um, like, like generics, like protocols, like witness tables, like V tables, you need to do that at a different level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you have the flexibility to do so in both like the case of, of Silt and the features you wanted to focus on and in the case of Swift and make these kind of different trade-offs. So uh, now that we're talking about you know type checking, we're talking about all these different um, phases that the compiler goes through. Uh, it's getting more and more evident, like you know, there's a lot of things going on under the hood, and Swift as a language is quite complex to compile because it has a lot of features that kind of make it more complicated to compile than, for example, Objective C or C even. So Harlan what are kind of some of these complexities and could we answer the question that you know a lot of people have which is why is my swift code taking so long to compile 
<laughs> yeah, so one of the biggest complexities that the Swift compiler has over C and Objective-C is the generic system. Um, you know, having a type system that allows for specialization of types and parameterized types and passing around meta types and, and type metadata around and performing runtime checks and runtime casts. There's a lot of stuff that Swift has to do um, that C and Objective-C don't have to do. Uh, that said, C and Objective-C do have, you know, some pretty complicated semantics, but a lot of a lot of those things happen at runtime in Objective-C versus at compile time in Swift. Yeah. So the, the main reason that people, you know, well, there's a lot of possible reasons that people have seen their Swift code take a long time to compile. I'm sure everyone's familiar with the expression too complex error that has since changed to uh, the compiler was unable to figure out your types, which is a little bit nicer. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a little bit more human. <laughs> little, yeah, a little bit less uh, accusatory, like, why right. did you write such a complex expression? Exactly. Um, but a lot of the reason for that is just that when you add generics to a language and then also add overloading and also add implicit conversions between types... Uh, suddenly what became, what was a, you know, a quadratic problem is now an exponential problem. Right. So, you know, if you have some number plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 divided by 5 plus 6, uh, it has to check every overload of plus. And then for each overload of plus, it has to check every overload of the second plus. And then for every overload of that, it has to check every overload of the divide operator. And so what happens is you, you eventually build up this huge, huge, gigantic overload set that needs to be resolved. Um, and, and most of the work in, in type checker performance has been how do we prune these exponential trees before we just try everything? You know, how do we quickly reject some cases that would shave off a significant portion of the tree? Yeah, uh, but that's not that's not all the places where uh, there's work being done for performance. There's, uh, you know, a good amount of time is spent deserializing Swift modules, as well during compilation, um, just because they end up being pretty large, and there, there's just an, an amount of time that is spent parsing the the LLVM bitstream format of the module file, um, and so you know all these little things add up. Uh, and there's work being done right now by uh, Graydon Hoare and David Ungar on the Swift team to sort of better predict when incremental compilation is uh, able to happen. Um, I, I'm not fully familiar with this structure, and I think Robert might have more to say about this, um, but it's they're, they're calling it batch mode. It's sort of their model for a, a better way to batch compilations together um, to sort of get the benefits of things like whole module optimization on just regular invocations of the compiler. And so th there is a lot of work being done and a lot of things that, a lot of additions to the type checker and a lot of changes to the compiler are now being run through a compiler performance suite that makes sure that we're not regressing um, in performance of the compiler. They've also been sprinkling timers around to figure out just exactly what bits of the compiler are taking super long sometimes. 
Yeah, because one thing that you mentioned in your talk was that it's not always obvious kind of what is taking long. And sometimes you can get some false positives if you try to measure it yourself, if you just measure the type checking time, for example. Uh, I think, Robert, you we were talking a little bit about that in the talk about like what different phases can actually end up taking long and why. Yeah, it's very non-obvious in a large enough project what can necessarily be causing a lot of the performance drops. And to Graydon and David's credit, they have gone to great lengths to instrument the compiler in very fascinating ways. The compiler perf uh, suite is just one of those ways. The timers is one of those ways. Graydon has implemented a little script that he calls scale test, and it incrementally sort of creates a larger and larger input set and then tries to run a particular subset of the compiler or particular phase. Oh, that's very smart. And it it tries to track the amount of time that that phase takes and then gathers enough information to be able to make a rough judgment about the actual running time of that phase. So it can tell you whether it is roughly linear or roughly exponential. And then you can use that script to go off and have a better sense of where you're headed instead of just tilting at windmills. Yeah, exactly. And another thing, I guess, which is adding to this complexity, you know, we talked about generics, overloads, operators, you know, those are all really cool features. Uh, but one thing also in particular is that in Objective-C or C, we always had to specify the types of all of our variables and everything, like say, this is a string, this is an int. And in Swift, we have type inference, which I guess also adds to this problem. So the interesting thing is that type inference algorithms in general, uh, as a class of algorithms, are nearly but not quite linear in the size of their inputs. They are very quick beasts for the job that they do. Like Harlan was saying, the trouble is overloading, subtyping, and implicit and explicit conversions. Once you add those, your system introduces a certain like non-determinism at the meta level. Like there's these ors, these nasty ors that just start popping up all over the place. Yeah. And you have to go and you have to short circuit those ors. And that means potentially evaluating them to the end, which is trouble. Yeah. The other trouble is that, you know, we don't have access to Turing oracles in our daily lives. So there's nobody we can run off to and say, well, which one of these is better or worse than the other one? I mean, there's heuristics that we can apply to the problem, but in theory, we can be handed an arbitrary or of any size and be told to go find the true part of this, which if this is sounding familiar to anybody in a CS class, this is actually uh, the SAT problem. I, I think I have a gist to that effect that we can link yeah, sure. That would be awesome. Yeah, we'll put a bunch of links in the show notes up to all of these really cool things and all the work that you've been doing as well. So yeah, absolutely. All right. Awesome. So uh, now we've talked a bunch on, about the compiler and kind of the underlying infrastructure and some of the things that you've been doing as well. Uh, so now I think we should talk a little bit more about the Swift type system itself and kind of how it works and some of these kind of compiler features that are needed in order to make these kind of high level uh, features possible. So uh, we have a bunch of different features in the Swift type system, but why don't we start with a, like a little bit of an overview? We talked a bit about dependent types before, and how is Swift different in this case? Like, what kind of uh, principles does the Swift type system have? 
so to, to give an overview, uh, the Swift type system is boils down eventually to a constraint solver at the very end. Um, when you have a generic function that takes a set of parameters, um, the compiler will generate a set of constraints when you call that function that just says, you know, okay, I, I have I have inferred what the type of this parameter is, and I know what the type in whatever declaration I'm checking is, and I'll generate a constraint that says that the type of whatever I am passing to the function is convertible to the type that this function accepts. And so that's a constraint that gets added to the system. And so if you give, there'll be constraints for every value uh, passed into a function, and then many, many more constraints over the actual values themselves. Sometimes a constraint system can grow to be hundreds or even thousands of constraints large. Um, and then the Swift compiler has a constraint solver that says, you know, can we convert this type to this type? Can we convert this other type to this other type? Mm -hmm. And in the process of generating these constraints, they create a bunch of constraint, they're called meta variables, um, which are you know, I'm going to say that there is some type T such that, uh, you know, the type integer literal is convertible to T, and then also that T is convertible to um, int. Yeah. And so that that's sort of the kinds of constraints that you'll see. You'll see these two constraints in the system that says, okay, there is a T such that I can convert integer literal to T, and then that T is also somehow I can convert T to int. And then the compiler just has an understanding that, okay, um, if something is integer convertible, it can convert to int. So it can take those two constraints and and uh, substitute them both with one constraint that says, okay, this thing is integer literal, and I can convert that to int um, through substitution. And so it, it goes through this, this big pass of further substituting variables when it can, when it knows that, they, that the constraint is satisfied, and then reducing the constraint system until eventually it settles on and, and it's called unifies on uh, a solution to the constraint system. And once there is a, a good solution to the constraint system, uh, that they basically take the solved constraint system and substitute in the types that they've solved for for all the values. So if we think about it as, as sort of like rather than just checking, okay, is X an int? Is Y an int? Is Z an int? Uh, you create all these constraints at all these levels and then uh, you solve the constraints and assign the types. So that's why Swift is able to say, you know, um, actually a really good example of this is using the leading dot syntax for enum cases. Mm -hmm. um, that's a special expression in the syntax tree called an unresolved member expression. And basically it creates a constraint that says, all right, there's an unresolved member uh, and it's called this. And it has to there has to be a declaration that has a static property or static function that is called that thing. And that's a constraint. Um, and so the constraint solver just knows, okay, when I'm getting an unresolved member constraint, um, I, I will know to look for something in this declaration that has that name or something in this declaration that, you know, is convertible to this type. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, the, uh, when you start to view your calls to functions and your construction of variables and your generics as purely a constraint solution problem, uh, it, it makes it less frustrating when Swift is unable to um, 
you know, infer the types of your expressions. Yeah. Um, it doesn't really, you know, alleviate the frustration, but it makes it less frustrating because you're like, oh, little guy. Come on. <laughs> Poor little compiler. I know you could solve that, but I, I understand. I'll, I'll pull this out into a sub-expression and just, you know, give you a break for a second. Yeah, I'm going to give you a little helping hand here. <laughs> Yeah, that's perfect. That's uh, that's really cool, and that's uh, you know again goes to sh- to show like you know once you start breaking things down, you kind of it's easier to understand it and just view the the compilation process as this kind of you know solving all these constraints. And that's just for the type checker. Yeah, I'd also like to add a, a very unique feature of the Swift uh, type system is this idea called contextual types, which is. Don't Google that because there's an academic definition of contextual types, and it's completely different. Um, but suffice to say, like leading dot is an excellent example of this. You write a lot of types, it seems. Swift does a lot of inferring types, but the language requires that you provide a lot of types. It requires that you annotate properties with their types unless you can figure it out from the initializer. It, it requires that you label all your parameter types. Um, it requires that you provide like protocol constraints all over the place. Like those aren't really like information seems to flow one way and it's from your fingers into the computer. <laughs> yeah. And contextual types are sort of a way of giving back to you. It's like you told us that the first parameter here has type string. So why should you have to spell string again if you want to go, you know, look up some member or whatever or... Um, so like when we're forming that constraint, like Harlan was saying, we don't, we have a constraint that says, yes, there's some member somewhere called X or foo, but we also have a constraint that says that member is on a type called T for a concrete type, hopefully. And we can just go do that lookup. And so that's why this enables us to, to, you know, allow this like leading dot syntax, um, and and all kinds of like contextual lookup chicanery that gets done later. Uh, contextual types can be a blessing and a curse because they also make your type system eat itself in a few not necessarily desirable cases. It also encourages you to start relying on the contextual types uh, as gospel, which is not traditionally something that type systems tend to do. Um, there's usually a rule that appears in most type systems that says, I'm allowed to check out whatever you wrote, figure out what I think it is, and then tell you why you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Swift's version of that rule is, I'm allowed to take you at your word, and y- you know, you're a programmer, and you, you're a human, and you err, and the compiler then sort of goes off on a quest to figure out what it you think that you that it thinks that you meant, which is less direct than what the compiler thinks went wrong, you know, yeah. with your code. So this can lead to some interesting um, diagnostic cases. Like I remember in early versions of Swift, it would say like I can't convert string to string, and it's like, well, right, yeah. <laughs> you why that happens is because you told me this thing was this thing, and you and I took that contextual type and I added it to some constraints and I solved those constraints and you were wrong, but but I'm a, I have to take your word for it. Yeah, exactly. The epic compiler quest ends back where it started. <laughs> yeah, and so everybody's confused and and it's because the constraint system is sort of zealous about about contextual types. 
Yeah. Oh, that's super interesting. And I mean, that's a, a lot of the kind of quote unquote secret sauce behind how nice Swift is, is these contextual types. The fact that we can do things like dot syntax and, you know, we have type inference. It's what kind of makes Swift so nice to write in many cases. Yes, it absolutely is a, a huge, huge ergonomic feature. And it certainly does simplify generating constraint systems too, um, because we can just pull the contextual types along with us. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's always, there's always cost to every abstraction. Yeah, of course. Another thing that Swift is often kind of pitched as or talked about as is a protocol oriented language. And the fact that kind of protocols are used both a lot in the standard library and they're really encouraged to, to, uh, to use like even in our code and a lot of the features that we've been seeing lately, like conditional conformance and things are all kind of related to protocols. So how does kind of the protocol-oriented nature of Swift kind of influence how the compiler and the type system works? Protocols add a layer of complexity on top of your system. I haven't really seen a convincing paper that is able to effectively manage their integration into a language. Um, and the more general, if anybody's looking for, for like literature on this, the usual keywords are like uh, ad hoc polymorphism, mm -hmm. interfaces, or protocols, something like that. Right. Um, that's sort of the older name for a lot of the more general research on this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, protocols in the type checker aren't really a big deal because the constraint that you generate is just the question, does T conform to your protocol? Mm -hmm. And that's a question that requires a whole other set of machinery to answer. And this is an excellent transition to talking about one of the more silent actors uh, in the Swift compiler is the generic signature builder, um, which is this really core abstraction that manages all of the protocol conformances and and all the layouts of functions and function signatures, uh, and to a certain extent, the uh, um, manages conformances for types, sort of like pushing them around uh, to make the whole thing work. And the generic signature builder isn't just a semantic thing. Its work carries on to all different lower phases of the compiler. Because, for example, if you were writing a function and you're generic in like six parameters, and then you start telling us all kinds of associated type constraints that you have on the thing, you start maybe equating some of the parameters to each other, you know, it would be really nice if we could take that signature and shorten it, make it as short as possible, and compact all the requirements that you gave us, and, and really just arrive at this minimal set of constraints that still capture what you meant, but at the same time are much more efficient to implement at runtime. Because types are values in Swift, mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons I love this language. When you have a generic parameter, you are passing type metadata. That, that comes in as a formal parameter in the most abstract version of your function. So if types are values, then protocol conformances are also values, you know, because you need to be able to take, you need to be able to use your type, you know, with your protocol conformance. Yeah. You know, it, 
And so these things get added to the function like transparently. And so it'd be a good idea if we didn't like literally compile all the constraints that you possibly gave us. Because you know you might wind up with this recursive expansion that's just thousands and thousands of parameters deep, and that's not going to fly. Yeah. All right. Really cool. So I think the final thing we want to talk about now is kind of getting back to the talk that you did at App Builders, which was all about like getting started contributing to Swift. So what kind of tips do you have for people now who are listening to the show? You know, they're hearing about the compiler, the type system, and maybe getting a little bit inspired or at least intrigued and want to kind of figure out more about these things. So what's the best place to get started with contributing to Swift? Well, uh, I think the best place to absolutely get started is forums.swift.org. Uh, the Swift forums uh, has been really a great community of people who are interested in furthering the language, interested in uh, implementing you know, new parts of the language. People discuss implementation details on the forums. People come there with their bugs. Um, the forums are a really good place to get involved in the community, even if you're not quite ready to make a contribution. Uh, the forums are a really great way to get involved in the community, get your voice heard in, you know, discussion about evolution proposals. Uh, I'd highly recommend starting at the forums. Um, if you do make a post there about, you know, how do I get started, what's a good thing to get started, you'll probably be pointed directly to bugs.swift.org. <laughs> right. Um, Swift has a bug tracker that's public. Uh, it's a Jira instance. And if you search for the label starter bug then you'll find a curated set of bugs by uh, the core team and other compiler contributors that they consider to be a good bite-sized problem that you can tackle uh, if you don't have any experience in the compiler. Starter bugs are a good place to get started if you're looking for something that you can just pick off and spend a couple days on here and there and hopefully have a solution and get it merged. Nice. Yeah, that sounds really good. Yeah, it's just like we talked about earlier. It's like starter bugs are great usually in any kind of project because they're usually more bite-sized and they're like narrow in scope. So instead of having to learn about all the different kinds and all the different subsystems, you can usually dive in and just fix a bug in one subsystem. And even though you might need to go on a little bit of a you know exploration and figure out all the different parts in order to solve the bug, you can at least, it's more contained like in one part of the system. All right, Robert, do you have any other good tips for beginners? The most difficult thing for me when I initially got started, and it is, it remains the most difficult thing to me today, is effectively using the build script and all the tools that have been laid out. And it is something that we did try to cover in the talk, um, but it is, it, it is a source of confusion for beginners. There's so many people that I've tried to onboard and they hit some odd Python error or other, or like they can't run the test suite because they accidentally built the wrong, you know, target. Um, incremental builds are just a mystery. I think we do, we try to cover a lot of uh, what we feel are, are gaps in the existing documentation, mm -hmm. which we do hope to address very, very soon because it would be very nice to never have people go through this again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that sounds that's like a good goal. Yeah, the talk is really, really good. And of course, there will be a link in the show notes to the talk. And I really encourage anyone who wants to get started contributing to Swift to watch that talk. Uh, and one thing that, you know, you talk about there and you, you go through is, 
kind of all the bootstrapping that you need to do. And that's like what you mentioned as well with the build script, because, you know, when I was going to first look at Swift and kind of, you know, clone the project, I initially had the idea that, well, it's just going to be an Xcode project and I can start coding, <laughs> but it's, uh-huh. it's not that easy. Yes. Um, and it's, it, the system requirements for that compiler are steep. And there are things that we can do to try to mitigate that. Um, for example, the I believe the current build still copies build products into every single directory every time it goes to to build a different project in the Swift stack, which adds gigabytes. Yeah. I'm probably going to catch some flack for this, but with any luck, eventually the Swift compiler will just be a Swift package. <laughs> He has this. He has this uh, uh, goal of um, of uh, getting it into people's subconscious that we should uh, be a self-hosting right language. <laughs> It'll happen eventually. Eventually, I'm going to be an old man with a cane on my lawn, <laughs> screaming that Swift still needs to self-bootstrap. <laughs> oh, nice! I can't wait for that day. All right, cool. Uh, really good uh, tips. Uh, so what do you say? Should we round off with answering some questions from the audience? Sure. Yeah. Let's do it. So we're going to start here with a question from Alejandro Martinez. And he's asking a little bit about how, how companies can get their changes into Swift. So for example, how big is the effort needed to merge all the Google Swift changes into the official repo? And uh, doing it like does it bring any inconvenience to the compiler itself so i guess what alejandro is referring to here is the recent changes google have been making to enable tensorflow their machine learning platform that we talked about last episode with megan about uh, to kind of get that into the official repo so what's your take on this like taking something like that which is more purpose-built for a specific thing in mind and kind of getting it uh, kind of into the main repository yeah, so I think the hardest part of this entire TensorFlow, um, I this this whole thing, is going to be getting the community on board with with adding this to the language, um, because the TensorFlow changes do involve changes to the surface of the Swift language, and so they're going to need to have evolution proposals, and there's going to be rounds of bike shedding and discussion about how exactly we want to bring that forth. So I think the part of this that's going to take the longest time is not actually merging the code into Swift. It's going to be uh, bringing it up with the community, talking it, talking it over on Swift Evolution, um, and and figuring out the actual uh, best way to integrate the TensorFlow changes. So I, I I was reading over the the changes this morning, and Harlan is exactly right. I think that. The changes themselves, modulo a rebase that this thing really needs is <laughs> is is going to be fairly natural. They have they have added a few AST nodes, but they're just sort of like compiler directive style features. Because I, Latner and his team, uh, to their credit, very smart in in implementing this in sort of a not quite a feature feature way, uh, so they can easily transform it in the future. Right, in a more abstract way, I guess. Yes. Um, and they have contributed, uh, it, it seems like, multiple optimization passes, which are quite interesting, and an additional pass that transforms um, TensorFlow operations to a particular form that TensorFlow is most suited to. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's called SESE. 
there's a paper about that that's linked in their repo, and we can in turn link to TensorFlow. Yeah, for sure. Um, but it doesn't look like they've changed anything drastic. So this should be the the process of slicing this into chunks and getting it in uh, through evolution will be the majority of the overhead. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know that will also kind of reduce the risk of it being like a maintenance problem or something like that because the community will have time to familiarize themselves with the changes and have a, you know have opinions about it, give their feedback, and then it goes in into the repo. So this is a kind of uh, situation where I feel like the evolution proposal kind of um, system really like is is a, is a good uh, is a good tool to have. I don't anticipate that evolution is going to have many changes. Uh, to make. Uh, if anything, I think Evolution will probably just take issue with some of the names and some of the things that are shortened. Developers arguing about names? Are you, really? <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. De- I mean, Swift, Swift has this interesting developer community that's like, you know what? Let's just go ahead and make things verbose because it makes it clear. Right. And I like that. I yeah. really appreciate that. Exactly. It kind of also ties back to the Objective-C roots, right? String by appending string yeah. and yeah, video by reading last frame of buffer and stuff like that. <laughs> 10,000 character selectors, yeah. Yeah, that's the best. <laughs> All right, awesome. So it looks like uh, you know it will be pretty straightforward to get the Google changes in, we hope. And uh, it looks like a really interesting addition as well, and especially bringing something like TensorFlow and all the machine learning things uh, you know, to be able to use swift with that is extremely exciting i'm super excited to see what the community does with that there's there's too many dynamic languages in machine learning and just being able to statically analyze people's ml code is just it's going to be a huge boon i think yeah people are going to be way more productive yeah Cool. We have a second question here from Damian Malarcic, and um, he's asking a little bit about one of your projects, Harlan, uh, or the project, one of the projects you worked on when you were working at Apple, as far as I know, which is LibSyntax. And he's wondering a little bit, you know, since you introduced it a while ago, uh, what's the state of LibSyntax, and are, is there any ongoing work on kind of code formatting tools similar to what we have for C with Clang format. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, it's very interesting that that question is asked. Um, I don't have any you know in, internal insight as to the plans that Apple has for LibSyntax, um, but they since I gave the talk at TriSwift, uh, they've implemented almost the entire. I think the entire Swift parser uh, has a separate uh, mode that runs alongside it that generates a LibSyntax tree, and that mode is pretty complete at this point. I think there's only a couple of AST nodes that are left to parse. Uh, so Swift syntax, I would say, is generally useful right now for building tools. And uh, on the side of the formatter, um, I, I'm not sort of ready to announce the, the details of it right now, but I that's the, the project that I'm working for with Google right now, working on with Google right now, is a Swift formatter and linter using Swift syntax. Oh, that's super cool. And it's been a really cool project, and we hope to have details of that uh, coming out soon. Um, we're really excited about it. I think Swift Syntax is probably the ideal mechanism for writing, formatting, and linting. Yeah, um, because then you're actually working, you're tying into the compiler. You're not just parsing strings, right? You're actually looking at yes. the, the, the real syntax that happens. Yes. Please do not parse the result of dumping the AST from the Swift compiler. Please do not. 
Right. There are there are a lot of people that are doing that right now. Do not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just asking for trouble, right? We will change it, and you will break. <laughs> we will hunt you down. <laughs> and you will just break. Like <laughs> that's all the punishment you need. Right. Yeah. That's uh, especially as an open source maintainer, I can relate. That's all the punish punishment you need when you abuse <laughs> internal implementation details of of uh, the Swift systems. Oh yeah. All right. Awesome. Uh, this has been a blast. Uh, I've learned a lot, and I hope that everyone listening has as well. Uh, it's been, you know, really cool doing all these deep dives into the compiler type system and hearing about all these different projects that you've been working on. Uh, like we mentioned, there will be a ton of links in the show notes, so make sure to check them out. Uh, you can find them in your podcast player, or you can go to swiftbysundell.com/podcast/slash/twenty-three, and you can find all the show notes for this episode. Uh, but for now, we've reached the end. So all that remains is for me to thank you very much for joining me on this show. Thank you very much, Harlan. Thank you so much, John. This has been super fun. I'm so I'm so excited to get this out there and see what people say. Yeah, it's going to be really, really cool to release it and see see what the feedback is. And thank you very much, Robert. Yes, it was a pleasure. So if people now want to find out more, except for kind of all the links and stuff that we will put in the show notes, if people want to follow you online, uh, where should they go? Probably, I think, for both of us. Uh, for me, it's Twitter. Um, Harlan Haskins on Twitter is just my, my handle, my full name. Um, you can just find me there and follow me. And there's probably some other links to websites and stuff. My personal blog is also a good one, just harlanhaskins.com. Uh, man, having a unique name is really great because domains are super cheap. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, and I am uh, Codify with an underscore and the end of it uh, on Twitter. And that's where uh, you can either catch me there, you can catch me on GitHub. Um, we hang out together in the LVM Swift Slack, um, which we can also link to. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, if you're interested in any sort of compiler development in Swift, uh, we'd love to have you on the LLVM Swift Slack. Um, it's, it, you know, every so often we'll have discussions, but most of the posts there are just, you know, git commit hooks. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But in the general channel, like, we we are always open to help people who have questions about just LLVM in general or Swift in general or, you know, the the marriage of the two. Yeah, Awesome. Um, you can also find me online. I'm at John Sundell on Twitter, and you can find everything about this show and all the weekly Swift blog posts at swiftbysundell.com. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.